Hello and welcome to River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg. My name is Nolan Bicknell. With me as always is my co-host, Robert Zirk. On today's show, we'll be joined by Mark Reed, editor-in-chief of Canada's History Magazine. He shared his insights on their recently released special issue focusing on treaties and the treaty relationship in Canada. Then, on this week's road trip, we visited the Firefighters Museum of Winnipeg. Past president of the museum, Ted Kuriluk, takes us on a tour where we're going to learn more about how firefighters in our city responded to calls long ago. We'll also speak with Shirley Godkin from the Urban Retreats Garden Tour Tea and Sale happening Saturday. We'll learn all about some of the different tours and about one of Winnipeg's permaculture gardens. And finally, we'll speak with Dr. Alan Ronald, microbiologist from the University of Manitoba. He'll tell us about some of the amazing medical breakthroughs and leadership that our province has been involved in over the past 40 years. We've got all this, some great music, and much, much more on today's episode of River City 360. Hello and welcome to River City 360. As we mentioned, my name's Nolan, your name's Robert. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. How are you doing? How's the week been for you? It's been a pretty busy week. Yeah? We've, uh, yeah, we just actually went on uh, another road trip Couple to of road the trips. Firefighters Museum. These are pretty cool, hey? Like, yeah. they're actually a fun time for us. It's a lot of fun. It's uh, it's really interesting to learn about some of the, some of the history here in our city um, and discover places that we weren't really all that familiar with or maybe didn't even know were around. Well, it's so. from, a, yeah, and it's history from a very unique perspective too, right? Like it's not just sort of the history of, you know, mayors or whatever, the city itself, but it's really specific histories like how people used to fight fires in the 19 whatevers back in the day. So it's really cool to uh, experience those things and I can't wait to hear where you and Sonny went on the road trip this week. Um, today, Another thing that I'm excited about is today is National Indigenous Peoples Day. So happy uh, celebration day to you, Robert, and to everyone listening today. Uh, As for our first interview today, Mr. Mark Reed, the editor-in-chief of Canada's History Magazine, is going to be talking about the treaties. And uh, they they just released an issue that's specifically focusing on treaties. So he's going to tell us all about that and where you can find the magazine and where you can learn all about it. And actually to celebrate National Indigenous Peoples Day, we're going to be having the Director of Community Grants at the Winnipeg Foundation, Megan Tate, on the program. She's going to tell us about their new reconciliation granting stream that's actually accepting applications this week. So stay tuned for that. Lots of really good stuff about Indigenous Peoples and about reconciliation. Uh, but we always kick things off on our C360 with some music. So, uh, Robert, what song should we play first today? Well, to start things off, we're going to play 101 Strings with Dear Heart right here on River City 360. Thank you. 
River City 360. I'm Sunny Promolo, and with me today is Mark Reed, Editor-in-Chief of Canada's History Magazine. Welcome to the show, Mark. Well, thanks for having me. Canada's History recently released a special issue last month called Treaties and the Treaty Relationship. Could you tell me what was the purpose of this issue? Certainly. Uh, well, Canada's History produces Canada's History magazine and also Kayak Canada's History for Kids. And we uh, have a long history ourselves of telling Canada's stories. Um, in fact, our magazine dates back to 1920 when it was the Beaver magazine. And ironically enough, there was uh, plenty of stories about Indigenous people in the early magazine of the Beaver, but always told from a non-Indigenous point of view. Always, um, uh, you know, the uh, the exotic north and visiting these strange locations and never actually finding out about the people who live there or hearing their stories from themselves. So fast forward to today. Obviously, Indigenous issues are crucial to understanding Canada and also to fostering reconciliation. And yet here we are as a society, a non-Indigenous society, looking around, not even understanding the histories of treaties and how we got to where we are today. And so we we realized that if we, if we didn't go back to the beginning, to the treaties and the treaties relationship and what they said and what they were intended to do, if we didn't go back and examine that, um, and give that to our readers. Um, really, without that basis, how would we ever begin to understand where we need to go to get true reconciliation? Absolutely. There's a lot of misconceptions with the treaties, and the magazine gets in-depth with a lot of it. One thing people will get to see is that the magazine is well thought out. Even the cover has a deeper meaning. Uh, what is the story behind the cover? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you, uh, you noticed and recognized that. It's a, a tremendous piece of art that is a collaboration between uh, a Winnipeg artist, a Métis artist, Kenneth Lavely, and our art director for the issue, Andrew Workman, mm. who's a, one of our uh, designers. And so the concept was there's this saying, this treaty phrase, as long as the sun shines, the grass grows and the waters flow. That's how long our commitment to each other will last. Mm. And so... Uh, the, the artist and our designer worked on this concept of creating um, a sweet grass braid that is, is in the three different colors that each symbolize an aspect of that saying, the sky, the color of the earth, the color of water. And the cover goes from the front to the back cover. It extends and then they start to blur and the colors come together um, to show that it's all part of a, uh, the, the same entity, this earth that we live on, this turtle island that we share. Um, and so uh, hopefully it symbolizes that idea that uh, not only are treaties a promise to each other, um, but it's a, a promise, uh, I guess, to, to care for each other and mm. care for the earth. That really is beautiful and really amazing. I understand that there was quite a bit of collaboration involved with the editing process of the magazine. What kind of partnerships were involved in the creation of this publication? Well, uh, first off, I mean, we had some amazing uh, supporters, including the Winnipeg Foundation, 
um, who gave us some really generous support to actually get the issue off the ground. I mean, that was number one, and our donors and others. Um, we knew that this had to be an opportunity for Indigenous people, for First Nations people, to uh, tell their own stories. And so we reached out to the Treaty Commission of Manitoba, right here in Winnipeg, and uh, thankfully got uh, Loretta Ross, the Treaty Commissioner herself, to join us as a co-editor for the issue. Um, and she brought to bear a tremendous amount of knowledge um, and energy and passion. Um, she helped steer us in the right direction to make sure that we got that full story, um, mm -hmm. at least the beginnings of the full story told. And then the second step was we gathered together a group of stakeholders, including people such as Dr. Corinne Duhamel, who um, is the head of Indigenous content at the uh, Human Rights Museum here in town, um, and others of her stature from across the country, educators, awesome. Indigenous voices. Uh, we brought in a, uh, a representative from the Federal uh, Indigenous Affairs Department uh, because it really needs to be everyone working together. And we basically had a really frank and honest discussion about what was important, approaching things as, such, as simple as, as what stories do we tell? And then who could we recruit that would be best to tell them? And after that initial meeting, um, we set off with a plan and then we began researching and, uh, and recruiting um, excellent writers from across the country um, to tell the tale of treaties. And, and the way we approached it was from a regional point of view, a chronological point of view, um, and, a, and also kind of a thematic point of view mm. um, because we really wanted to come at it from all angles and really give people a, 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 a really broad yet deep understanding of uh, how, how our treaties were made and, and what they were intended to do. So without giving away the whole magazine, uh, of course we want people to read it, could you give us a little glimpse of what people should expect in this issue? Well, the number one, if you're not a First Nations person, you should, be, uh, you should expect to be surprised. Because I, I'm, I'm going to be 47 this year. I grew up in Nova Scotia. Um, I love history, and I took it all through school, and I didn't learn this history. Um, there were Mi'kmaq people living in the region of Nova Scotia that I, uh, all throughout Nova Scotia, but e even close by. Um, we didn't learn about, about their history, their stories, their culture. And it, it wasn't hidden. I mean, it wasn't intended to be kept from us. It was just not about or even thought about mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things I think that it will surprise people is the idea that treaties aren't about First Nations they're about all of us mm -hmm. we made promises as non-indigenous non-First Nations people our ancestors made promises and also the other idea is that it has to go beyond what's written down on paper mm -hmm. because the two sides of the story um, had very different understandings of even what a treaty was. I think one of the, again, one of the things that, a theme that runs throughout the entire document is the idea of the concept of, of land and how uh, different visions of what land is. The European-centric vision was land was something you owned and you could buy and sell it, make profit off of it, claim it, show up here in a schooner or a, a sailboat in 1492 and stick your sword in the ground and say that now it belongs to Spain mm -hmm. or France or, or Britain. Um, for indigenous people, and this again was repeated by our indigenous writers, the people are the land, they are of the land. Uh, you cannot separate the two because it was given to them by the creator. They are part of the creator's creation and the only thing they can do is caretake and share it. And so for First Nations people, when they first met 
the Europeans, they, they by and large thought that they were agreeing to share the land, not mm-hmm. sell the land. Um, things may change, may have changed over, over decades and years and, and whatnot, but, but that very beginning conversations, the very, very first uh, uh, treaties were based on a misconception that the uh, First Nations people were giving up their land for money, mm-hmm. when really they literally believed that they could not do that. It really is just eye-opening to find out that during the negotiation, there was so much miscommunication and multiple interpretations from the Indigenous side and the European side, of course. What's great about the magazine is that you can also learn things like the significance of sacred objects, amongst other things. Where can people get their free issues and actually see this magazine? Uh, you can go on canadashistory.ca. I believe it's canadashistory.ca slash treaties. Uh, but if you get to the website, canvashistory.ca, you'll be able to find the link. And we have the entire issue up on PDF awesome. to be shared. It's also in English and in French. Oh. So, um, you know, follow the same link, click French and bingo, there it is. We've actually given away thousands and thousands of copies of this issue. Um, mm. We're not selling it. That's part of the idea is that we think it's important to read this. Absolutely. And so we've, we've given away thousands of copies to schools, libraries, and, and other groups across the country. And so if we have a, a person in our office named Danielle Chartier, and uh, if people want to email dchartier um, at canadashistory.ca, C-H-A-R-T-I-E-R, she could probably set people up with at least the French copies. I honestly think it's so popular. I think all of the English copies have been basically um, snapped up as oh, soon wow. as they come out. People, um, people are really eager to get this. Uh, the other aspect of this as well is that we, we did free educational uh, materials and lesson plans for, mm. for teachers because the whole point of this issue is not just for it to sit on a shelf somewhere or even just to be read it's to be lived and so uh, in order to reach young people we uh, have armed teachers with uh, all kinds of lesson plans and activities that they can use based on this issue that they can bring to their students uh, in the fall and in years to come to really help them get a better understanding of, uh, of treaties and the treaty relationship in Canada. For those interested in Canada's history in general, what can they look forward to for any uh, upcoming publications? Well, uh, oh gosh, I mean, we, we have, we're always tackling amazing things. Um, in fact, our, our most current issue, which is on newsstands now, is about the first woman to ever get her pilot's license back in mm. 1920, I believe it was. Um, Eileen Volick and, and the amazing, uh, you know, the, the fight for, uh, for, for recognition for a woman trying to, to get into what really was a man's game back then. Uh, Canada's History publishes uh, six issues a year. Um, every two months. We also have Kayak Magazine, which is uh, published uh, mm-hmm. four, uh, four times a year, maybe three times a year. Um, and it's aimed at a, a age 7 to 11 audience. Lots of cartoons and fun mm-hmm. activities for kids. You can follow us on Facebook. You can you can check us out on Twitter, canisystory.ca. Um, you know, some of the stories that we're going to be tackling in the coming months, our October-November issue is going to be themed to the end of the First World War, mm. which, of course, it's been 100 years, and then the guns will fall silent um, um, on November 11th on Remembrance Day. That's the anniversary of the end of that uh, cataclysmic war. And so we're going to be uh, featuring a, a major article by uh, a, an acclaimed military historian, Tim Cook, who's going to be analyzing the war and its impacts. And, uh, you know, but we do everything from we're going to be uh, exploring uh, pirates in Atlantic Canada. We're going to be looking at... Uh, um, you know, the legacies of First Nation artists, everything. I mean, it's just everything under the sun, as long as it's about people and about Canadians um, and, and uh, sharing our stories 
and building greater empathy between each other. That's what we're all about. That's awesome. Really great work happening at Canada's History Magazine. Uh, Thank you again, Mark, for uh, taking the time out of your day to share with us. To everyone listening, be sure to pick up an issue of Canada's History and subscribe to a great Canadian publication. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you would like to add? Uh, First of all, I just want to reiterate how grateful we are. I mean, the Winnipeg Foundation was uh, crucial to us getting this issue published. And, uh, you know, I think it just is a great example. I mean, we are, um, we're a National History Society, but we're based right here in Winnipeg um, uh, on the University of Winnipeg campus. The magazine has been printed in Winnipeg since 1920. Mm. And I think we're proud of that because we we tell Canada's stories, but we're kind of in a, a unique place here in Winnipeg, you know, a very, a very different perspective. We're sort of in the center of it all. Um, and Canada's history, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a fancy name, but it's produced by us right here in the city. We're proud of that. We're proud of telling Winnipeg's stories, Manitoba's stories. And, uh, you know, and we look forward to engaging and, 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 and telling more stories in the years to come. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Sonny, and thanks again to Mr. Mark Reed, Editor-in-Chief of Canada's History Magazine. As we mentioned at the top of the show, next week we're going to be having uh, the Winnipeg Foundation's Megan Tate on the show. She's the Director of Community Grants at the Foundation, and she's going to be telling us about the new Million Dollar Reconciliation Granting Stream that is launched this week at the Winnipeg Foundation. Um, But before we get to Megan next week, this week, we're going to go on another road trip. Robert, I understand you and Sonny went down to the uh, Firefighters Museum of Winnipeg, uh, so I can't wait to hear all about the road trip and what you guys learned and saw and experienced there. But before we get to that, here's the Cincinnati Pops Orchestra with Eric Kunzel with Memory right here on RC360.
Welcome to the RC360 Road Trip. This week's destination is the Firefighters Museum of Winnipeg. Let's take a look. It's our road trip segment, and today it finds us at the Winnipeg Firefighters Museum, and I'm here with Ted Karaluk, the past president of the Winnipeg Firefighters Museum. Ted, thank you so much for joining us today and for the tour. Oh, my pleasure. There's so many interesting historical artifacts here from Winnipeg's history as it pertains to uh, some of the major fires that have happened in the city and the history of firefighting here in Winnipeg. Can you give us sort of a brief overview of of what the museum's all about and why it's important to uh, look back at some of this history? We're one of the only museums in Canada, actually, to my understanding, in North America, that is in a working fire hall and once was a working fire hall. This was a fire hall from 1903 to 1990. Fire halls of the time were all built basically for horse-drawn apparatus response, which was slower and uh, not as easy to get at. So they were actually quite close together when they were built. The uh, fire halls today, of course, you can respond uh, a lot further, a lot quicker. So they're they're a lot further. So this became redundant. And Mayor Norrie dedicated this fire hall to the firefighters uh, in uh, 1982 uh, at the time of our centennial. And we're very pleased and proud. And we think we're doing the city proud with it. And we've got a lot of stuff to see here. And it's really incredible how much uh, detail that there is in terms of preserving different artifacts or or going back. You also have an extensive archive that we just saw um, that has clippings from virtually every single article about fires in, you know, the past however many, you know, decades and decades of info. Yes, in our library, we've got uh, a newspaper archives that actually uh, my wife has looked after and made for about, I guess it's probably close to 30 years now. She's got every article that was printed in the local papers and then some, and it's articles that are good and bad. There's good news stories and, of course, the tragedies that that go in there as well. And they're very, very valuable to us because we're able to trace locations and, and and incidents, uh, you know, going back uh, prior to Winnipeg being a city of 18, uh, 1874. That's amazing. Yeah. And you can see the wall has got binders and binders and binders full of articles. Here we are. Uh, we're actually in the second floor of the museum. I, I guess you've got to look at it in the picture of what it was. Firefighters at the turn of the century actually lived in the fire hall. Every room, as you can see, is a bedroom or was a bedroom with a washroom and, and whatnot. This area where we're sitting, standing in right now was what we call the sitting room. And this would be a re- relaxing area that, that uh, you would read a book. During my day, there was actually a huge 6 by 12 pool table in the middle here. And the guys used to you know, spend some time uh, in recreation doing that. How many uh, firefighters would be staying here at any given time? In the station's heyday, it would have been around 16 or 17 firefighters would be uh, would be here. But let's uh, let's talk a little bit about that teamwork, and that's really illustrated by some of the things that we saw downstairs. We have a hose wagon that you were showing us a little bit earlier that dates back from 1882. That's correct. That is a uh, 1882. 
a hose wagon and actually what makes it unique is it's hand drawn. This would have, would have been used during uh, the volunteer days and it's basically a hose reel on a wagon with two large wheels and it would be pulled by well whatever volunteers you would have uh, probably four people four maybe five people would push this and there were hydrants they were nominal they were minimal but the city did have hydrants and you'd hook it up to a hydrant and you'd have hydrant pressure to uh, to fight your fire with. It was archaic but it did work. And then uh, upgrading from that a little bit, we had uh, some of the steamers here. What we have is an 1884 steamer, uh, and basically it's a steam engine with a pump that was horse-drawn. Every fire department steamer at the time had a name. They were named after mayors of the day. We don't name our fire trucks now, but the, uh, the Alex Logan here is a, a very, very pristine piece that we're very proud of. It does have a siren that I can show you. Okay, yeah, and, let's hear it. And it's, uh, this one would have been pulled by two or three uh, horses. The driver sits alone uh, on a perch that's not very big. And with the trampling feet right in front of you, I'm, I really wouldn't want the job of the driver. But... Well, with the foot pedal, that's what he would be uh, operating his siren with, and that's uh, the gong that would be uh, scaring away the horses and scaring away the dogs and whatnot as, as they'd be flying down the street with the hooves just a trampling. And speaking of horses, the area behind us used to be a stable, you mentioned. Correct. So where we came into the building where I let you in, that of course, as you're right, was a stable. Uh, above it, on the second floor above that, was oatmen, hayloft, tack room, storage, and everything uh, that would be associated with the horses. The horses in the station, they were very well trained. All the harnesses and whatnot were all pre-attached. They were pre-attached to the apparatus. There was a whole maze of, of quick-release ropes and whatnot suspending the harnesses from the ceiling. When an alarm would come in or be, be transmitted to the fire hall, the floor man, the man who would be responsible here, he had the ability to open the correct gates and doors from the stable doors. The horses were trained. They walked out on their own and stood in front of their respective apparatus. At the right time, someone would release the harnesses. they drop on the horses. A couple of straps, bridle, what one thing or another that had to be strapped. Within basically seconds, the horses were ready to go. Speaking of that response, we can see here the call and response system. So how uh, you know how calls were received. Tell us a little bit about how that worked. If, well, if it was, there was obvious, nine one one. Isn't that the way it's done? Actually, long, long, long before nine one one. Alarms were transmitted by fire alarm pole stations on intersections, in the street corners, in all the residential and commercial areas. And there were hundreds of alarm boxes. It, would, it was basically a telegraph system. You would pull the alarm box, it would transmit a three-digit code to the central station, and that would be dispatched to all the fire halls, and it would ring the gong, and it would run it through a ticker tape system, you would read the number, the responding number on a, on a master legend, and you would know if the respective apparatus had to go. It was actually quite unique for its day, but it was nothing like the, nowhere near like the computer-aided dispatch that cities have uh, today. <laughs> Let's take a walk over sure. here uh, to some of the uh, the fire engines. One here has been beautifully, beautifully restored, and the other is, is still in 
remarkably good condition. It's got a little bit of wear on it from its time. Tell us a little bit about these. We have two Canadian-made LaFrancis. One is a 1928. Uh, that is the one that's been totally restored by our guys. It was a, a complete frame-off restoration. Every piece was sandblasted and painted and restored to its to its day. It's it's quite a, a good-looking piece. The other uh, is a 1930, uh, also a Canadian-made. They're called La France Fulmites, and it's not even dented, but there is a, a lot of uh, use on it, and it, we're very proud of it. This one piece, the 1930 La France, during the 1950 flood, was uh, parked on the top of what is now Churchill Drive, which was a dike to protect the Fort Rouge and Winnipeg and mostly the municipal hospitals, which is now the Riverview Complex. But uh, this ac- this pump actually uh, sat on the top of what's now Churchill Drive and pumped from one side of the river water to the riverside to protect the uh, sewage and the overflow systems from building up. And uh, we were told that it pumped for two and a half weeks straight at its prime time during the flood. That was just before the pump was retired. So right to the end, it protected the citizens. The crews, every eight hours, they would come in and throw a quart of oil in and fuel it up with fuel. And it just kept on chugging, pumping to capacity for that length of time. Pretty amazing for a 1930 La France. Absolutely. So if any of our listeners would like to come and visit the museum for themselves, how can they get in contact? We're open by appointment during the week any day. Uh, we're open for visitors on Sundays between about uh, 10 o'clock and about 2 o'clock. We have volunteers here every Sunday. You can book a tour at 942-4817 or uh, through the internet at uh, winnipegfiremuseum.ca. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Ted, for the, the wonderful tour of the uh, Firefighters Museum. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming on the RC360 road trip. See you next week, same time, different place. Thanks, Robert, and thanks, Sunny, and thank you to the Firefighters Museum of Winnipeg for graciously accepting us into your halls and showing us all around. That was very, very cool. Coming up next, this weekend is supposed to be absolutely gorgeous, and what a better way to spend it than a beautiful garden tour. Shirley Godkin from the Urban Retreats Garden Tour happening this Saturday is going to join us in studio coming up next to tell us all about it. But before we get to that, Mr. Bill Withers with Lovely Day right here on RC360. Sunlight hurts my eyes And something without warning love Bears heavy on my mind Then I look at you And the world's alright with me Just one look at you And I know it's gonna be
the day that lies ahead of me Seemed impossible to face When someone else instead of me Always seems to know the way Then I look at you And the world all Listening to River City 360. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined in studio by Shirley Godkin. She's the chair, actually, of the Garden Tour Committee for the Urban Retreats Garden Tour taking place in Riverview this Saturday. Shirley, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on the show because uh, this is a really kind of interesting event. So tell me about the Urban Retreats Garden Tour Tea and Sale. What's all going to be happening there? Okay, well, it's happening this coming Saturday, and it's uh, taking place in the Riverview area. Lovely, lots of lovely gardens in there. It's from 10 to 4, and it's a uh, self-guided tour. So you tour the gardens at your own pace, whatever you like to do during the day. Cool. And it's in support of uh, St. Matthew's Maryland Community Ministry. And it is sponsored by Ron Paul Garden Center. Very nice. So what what are the types of things that people are going to see? What gardens are, are they able to go to? Okay. I, I read that there's like a permaculture garden. Yes, as well there. that's right. Tell yes. me about yeah. all the things people could see if they come okay. down. Okay, well, Saturday. we've got 12 lovely private gardens in the tour. And some of the highlights of those would be a English 
uh, garden, English garden theme, a labyrinth garden. A um, can you get lost in the labyrinth, or what's uh, the probably not quite <laughs> that large, but it's still a good sized one. Cool, and that, and uh, uh, so those are a couple of the highlights. And we also have the um, River Bend Plaza uh, apartments, okay. and they're in the garden tour because they have a kind of unique composting program that's being used as a model for other uh, some same such urban settings. Very cool. And the permaculture gardens. Uh, at the permaculture, the folks at the permaculture gardens, they're trying to work with nature to refurbish grassy areas in the South Osborne area and turn them into food producing uh, areas mm-hmm. and so then the stewards of the garden the food that's that's uh, produced is shared with the stewards of the garden and uh, some local businesses buy the food from them Very cool. and that do they still have the the apple trees there the yes uh, yes I think that uh, Rod mentioned earlier this spring that there was at least 80 apple trees he was out busy pruning them uh, way back in about uh, Oh, be just before the w- they were predicting an ice storm, so like okay, end of cool. March there. Yeah, um, uh, Rod was actually on in the uh, Winnipeg Foundations magazine. They did a feature on the permaculture commons down there, and he works so hard right, to, to yes, maintain that. Yes. Such a and, great guy. And Rod is going to be uh, guiding, providing, being the uh, guide, conducting two 40-minute tours of the permaculture. Oh, okay, so there's self-guided tours around the 12 gardens and then two actual guided tours around the permaculture. That's correct, okay, and cool. that's going to be at 11 o'clock in the morning and at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Very nice. So I'm reading here, too, that there's a tea and craft sale. Tell me about the different kind of uh, things that people can pick up and, and, and uh, check out at the craft sale. Okay, well, we've got more than 20 artisans, and they're selling things like bags, wallets, trivets, wooden boxes, uh, sun catchers, some jewelry, cards, pottery, nice. and St. Matthew's Maryland Community Ministry, their artists are selling cards that they make there as well. Cool. So n- a nice little Saturday. You can come down. Right. And, have and some you can tea. tea. And the tea is a Manitoba tea. So that's tea in Bannock. Oh, nice. Very good. Um, so this is all raising money for St. Matthew's Maryland Community Ministry. Tell that, me a little bit about the organization. That's correct, yes. Okay, well, St. Matthew's Maryland has been loving their West End neighbors, as they say, for over 45 years. And um, I was actually uh, just there maybe a couple months ago because One Just City, I did a, an article for them on the upcoming Winnipeg Foundation magazine as well. So I'm very familiar with uh, St. Matthew's, Maryland. Oh, good. So yeah. have you met Josh then, the community I minister? I have, yeah. Yes, he's a great guy. Good. Wonderful, yes, wonderful yes, person. Yes, he's just doing lots of really good things for the ministry in that. For sure. So, um, so this is an annual fundraiser for the... It is St. an annual fundraiser. Actually, this is the 19th year for the tour. Nice. And uh, if you like, I could tell you a little bit how it started. Please. And that, so the original tour was organized by two community ministers, Yvonne Naismith and Irene Rainey, and uh, they were working at St. Matthews, Maryland at the time. And they were always looking for ways to connect the inner city folks with the congregations and as well have a little bit of augmented funding. So the idea came about for the tour, and the first one was in the Wildwood Fort Gary area, and it included 10 gardens. The day started out lovely and sunny, but a huge rainstorm came around noon. Classic Manitoba. Right, yeah, yeah. And don't like the weather, we'll wait five minutes. Mm -hmm. And anyways, but the show went on, and it didn't deter the people that were touring. And attendance has really grown since that time. Uh, At that tour, they sold about 100 tickets, and last year we welcomed over 500 gardening enthusiasts to our tour. That was going to be my next question. How many people are expected and what time are things kind of kicking off on Saturday? Okay, well, the tour is from 10 to 4 and the tea is from 11 till 2. And uh, I'm hoping that we'll have over 500 guests coming to the, the gardens. 
That'd be very cool. So anyone can come. Is it a long walk? Like I understand some people might have mobility issues or right. like how, okay. how long of a... Uh, actually, because it's in the Riverview area, it's a fairly small area. And we usually do try and have our garden tours in a fairly uh, small geographical mm-hmm. area. Uh, there's one street that has four gardens on it. And then you might move over two streets and have another two. So you might move your car. If you're a good walker, you could certainly walk it or mm-hmm. bike it. And otherwise, you might move your car one or two times. Yeah. Cool. So this is happening this Saturday in two days. If, if you're listening to the show on Thursday, it's happening uh, Saturday, June 23rd at 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. So if you're listening on the repeat broadcast at, on Saturday, then you still have time to go because it's happening in a couple hours. So you can head on over. Uh, where can people find more information, Shirley? Okay, they can get more information by uh, going to the St. Matthews, Maryland uh, website, and that's stmatthewsmaryland.ca. And uh, shall I tell about tickets now? Sure, yeah, please. Okay, the more information, so the, the better. The tickets cost $15, and they're available at Ron Paul Garden Center, McNally Robinson Booksellers, Jensen and Jensen's Nursery and Garden Center, and St. Mary's Nursery and Garden Center, and Lacoste Garden Center. And they're also available at the Riverview Community Center, 90 Ashland Avenue, on June 23rd, the day of the, okay, of the cool. tour. Very cool. So lots of options of different places to go. It sounds like a very nice day. Hopefully it's going to be nice. So do you know the, 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 forecast the forecast? is for quite warm, actually. Okay, so good. bring your water bottle and your sun hat. Good. <laughs> That's great to hear. Well, thank you so much for coming in today and telling us about the, uh, about the tour here. I think it's going to be a lot of fun for anyone who comes out on Saturday. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, well, just it, remember that the tour goes rain and shine, but the forecast does look good, and we'd uh, welcome anyone to, to come out and enjoy the tour. It sounds like a great Saturday. I uh, hope everyone has fun. Uh, thank you very much, Shirley, for talking to us today. Shirley Godkin is the chair of the garden, the Urban Retreats Garden Tour, Tea and Sale, happening this Saturday, June 23rd, 10 a.m. Go on down and check things out. Thanks, thank, Shirley. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nolan. Coming up next, we'll be joined in studio by Dr. Alan Ronald, acclaimed doctor and microbiologist working out of the University of Manitoba. Last week was the Canada and Global Public Health Moving from Strategy to Action conference, and we'll learn about the amazing work that's being done at home and abroad that's saving millions of lives. But before we get to that, though, here are the Shirelles with Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, right here on River City 360.
Thank you for listening to River City 360. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined in studio by Dr. Alan Ronald. He is a Canadian doctor and microbiologist. Dr. Ronald, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Nolan. Great to be here. So you've been instrumental in uh, the investigation into STIs in Africa, particularly in the field of HIV and AIDS. Uh, you also graduated from the U of M and was awarded the Order of Canada and inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame in 2011. So I uh, just wanted to thank you for being on the show and ask you, within the context of Manitoba's role and, and Winnipeg's role on the world stage, how, how has our province contributed to the global public health in the last few decades since you've been practicing? There are several things that uh, I'm going to mention that I think are important to both Winnipeg and Manitoba as well as the world. And the one that is in our mind just now is the Ebola vaccine, which was discovered over 10 years by a government of Canada scientists with participation of University of Manitoba graduate students and faculty. And that vaccine now is limiting a major scare in the Congo when Ebola looked like it was going to escape from its rural onset and spread widely into the big cities in the Congo, and you know, a huge problem if it had done that. But the vaccine was used immediately, now uh, approaching 4,000 doses given to individuals who had contact with an Ebola case, and essentially it totally prevents spread. So we no longer have a crisis on our hand. We will hear in the next couple of weeks that that Ebola outbreak has been contained, even though it was thought to be, could be the worst in history. It, was this all discussed at last week's um, Global Public Health Moving from Strategy to Action Conference, or what was discussed at that uh, during the week last week? A couple of years ago, uh, Mr. Lloyd Axworthy, uh, at a dinner evening, said to me, Alan, we need to celebrate the Ebola vaccine. We haven't done that. Winnipeggers don't even know that it was discovered in our city, and, uh, and this was before uh, we knew how effective it was. Uh, so we started planning then to, to think about what we could do to uh, recognize what Winnipeg and, and both the scientists and the individuals who work in both at the National Microbiology Lab and at the university are doing. So that's how it started. As we got underway, we decided to have a two-day conference, invite people from uh, six countries, uh, Nigeria, Uganda, Brazil, Peru, India, and Pakistan, all countries that know us well in Winnipeg, hmm. to come and tell us and tell the audience what do we need to help us with our public health system. Most Canadians, including many of our listeners, don't understand what a public health system is. And I will briefly explain it. Yeah, please. Public health isn't our health care system, which is very important, and we value our health care system. As an individual, I've had two aggressive cancers, and I'm alive today because the care system works well in this province. I didn't have to go to the Mayo Clinic or Harvard to get cared for it. I can get cared for very well here in Winnipeg. But public health is what government does to keep us well. Mm. And that is vital, and it's not present in most of the world. They don't have a public health system that works. As a result, they have wonderful non-government organizations that come in like MSF <coughs> and provide 
support when there's an emergency like they're doing now in the Congo. And uh, we need NGOs, but we also need governments that work. Mm-hmm. And our center understands how to help governments work well and it's sustainable. And that's why the Gates Foundation now is f- f- uh, giving us uh, about $50 million a year that flows to the University of Manitoba to help countries establish their infrastructure in public health because public health is cost effective. Mm-hmm. You know, we, when I started off, and I spent a year in Pakistan in the 60s, uh, there was three million deaths a year from smallpox. We haven't had a death since 97, uh, since 77, 77. sorry. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, so that's just the power of vaccines and preventative mes- medicine as opposed to reactive medicine where exactly, you're trying to cure, exactly. the, cure the disease. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, you've been practicing for a very long time. How have you, wh- what's the most striking thing about how medicine has evolved over the past you know, 30, 40 years? You know, I mean, the science has given us a lot of insights and clues. Uh, we know only a very small part of what there is to know. So we know less than 1% of what there is to know about the brain. So there's a whole world of research to be done there. We can't protect against most of the things that people like me worry about. Am I going to be among the 20% that die with a neurodegenerative uh, disease where I lose my memory and lose my who I am, dementia? Mm -hmm. Exactly. We can't prevent most of those, and that's very frustrating mm-hmm. when you're 80 years old, which I am next month. Oh, well, happy pre-birthday or uh, early birthday to you, sir. Thank you. Uh, you know, it is challenging because we are ignorant in so many areas that mm-hmm. we wish we knew more. At the same time, uh, I, in my 50 years of medical practice here in Winnipeg, there's so much that... Uh, that we didn't know when I started. And a lot of things I was doing harm to people with what I was doing. And probably today I, st- I still would be if I was still practicing because we just don't knowledge know. isn't adequate. Yeah. But we are learning and we're getting better at it. What do you wish Winnipeggers knew about our contribution on the world scale? I think they need to recognize that they have something here, both in the National Microbiology Lab and at the university that really makes a difference in, uh, we estimate, about 700 million people's lives yeah. uh, between India, Pakistan, and Nigeria, and Kenya. Well, that's and staggering. the Ukraine. How, why is Manitoba such a hotbed for, for this quality of work? Because we got started in 79 when I got invited by both the World Health Organization and the University of Nairobi to help them with their problem of sexually transmitted infections. I had some expertise there began working in Kenya, HIV came along, and thanks largely to Dr. Frank Plummer, he became a world leader in HIV research. Thank you for sharing all of this stuff, because I think it's awesome awesome to have have an expert and to to explain to people that we are at the forefront in this world, and it's kind of, it's kind of, um, Makes, makes me swell with pride a little bit to be a friendly Manitoban and to hear that we're uh, giving Nolan, our expertise to the world. Nolan was at a, a dinner <laughs> this past week where we celebrated, again, the Ebola vaccine, but we also celebrated our work in India. Yeah. And a very prominent senior Indian leader, Mr. <laughs> Ayub Alexander, talked about why he found Manitobans to be the, the, the group that could work with him to 
to solve problems. Yeah, and the, well, uh, so many of the of the speakers at that gala dinner talked about, you know, Manitobans are willing to get <clears throat> get a little bit of dirt under their fingernails and do the do the hard work. So it was really good to hear and, and makes me proud to be a, a Winnipegger and proud to be a Canadian. Uh, Dr. Alan Ronald, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Nolan. That's a wrap on this week's episode of River City 360. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and a huge thank you to all of our guests for talking to us as well. If you'd like to hear more views and news from around Winnipeg, listen to any of our past episodes, or subscribe to our podcast, please visit our website at rivercity360.org. Again, that's rivercity360.org. River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg, is a project of the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with 93.7 CJNU. And we'd love to hear your feedback about the show. Please give us a call. Our number is 204-944-9474, extension 360. Or if you want to tweet at us, you can do that too by searching at RiverCity360 on Twitter or find us on Facebook by searching RiverCity360 on there as well. I'm Nolan Bicknell signing off for River City 360. And I'm Robert Zirk. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Have a great day and a great weekend. Mm-hmm.